morning, beloved. Uh, if you would, open to Ephesians 2, and we will uh, springboard from that text back into um, our study of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this week we look at a portion of the Creed that states, I believe in the Holy Christian or Holy Catholic Church. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This ends of the reading of God's word. Now here now is the creed um, moves from confession of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it logically moves in, in speaking um, of his church. So in the clause here of the creed um, that expresses belief in Jesus Christ, he's called, as you notice there, our Lord. I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In that he is our Lord, declared by believers when they term the living organism, which they are members of, it's... it's infused within the triune Godhead, and that is the Holy Christian Church, or the Holy Catholic Church. I'll explain Catholic in a minute. As you're all well aware, um, the, the principal function of the Holy Spirit is to bring sinners to Christ. We just read that in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and he, the Holy Spirit, regenerates dead souls to resurrected spiritual life. We're at one time dead in our transgressions and sins, but God in due time granted us this glorious spiritual life. He also, that is the Holy Spirit, is the very presence of Christ um, among his people, which we experience every Lord's Day as his people are gathered together. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. That, however, is not his only function to be among us or to regenerate us, but it is his primary function. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, or Christian Church, the communion of saints, which we'll look at um, next Lord's Day. So while the Father, who sent the Son, who loved the church, 
and thereby the Son redeemed his church. He redeemed his people. It is holy. It's the Holy Spirit who makes it holy by the regenerating work within and actually creates inducing faith. So this is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Christian Church or the Holy Church of God is Catholic, which has nothing to do with the apostate Roman organization, but means worldwide. Catholic means worldwide. It means universal. And it implies that unlike the Jewish faith, which we read in Ephesians 2, which was narrow, local, and very ethnic, is now the worldwide, the worldwide body of Christ. Christ having come, he said, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we today are products of that glorious, great commission. And that commission continues to this day. When Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've taught you. Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. So the church's field is the world, and we have been given the Lord's Great Commission. So when you get to this clause of the creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic or the Holy Christian Church, as we render it, as we will today before we take the Lord's table. Um, When you get to this clause of the creed, Roman Catholics and, and Protestants here at this point part ways. When Roman Catholics profess this clause, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what they mean is that the Roman Catholic Church is the one and only true church, and it's holy because it produces saintly people. And it's the only place, they say, where the full faith is held in trust for all men. Official Roman Catholicism presents the Church of Christ as the organized body of baptized persons at the point of infancy and are in communion with the Pope and acknowledge the teaching and ruling authority of the episcopacy that is the Roman Catholic hierarchy. J.I. Packer comments on that, and he says this, and I quote, Pope, hierarchy, and extra-biblical doctrines are not merely non-essential, but actually deforming. If Rome is a church, which some reformers doubted, she is so, despite all the extras. Not because of them. In particular, infallibility belongs to God speaking in the Bible, not the church or any of its officers. And any teaching given in or by the church must be opened to correction by God's word written, end quote. Now, in our time, I'm living this side of the Great Reformation, which produced really the largest division in the history of Christianity. Um, It's hardly a church that manifests itself in true unity. I think we'd all agree. 
is there are hundreds of dominant denomination, denominations in our country alone, many of whom aren't true believers. They're just part of a denomination. They don't really believe in the triune God. They really don't believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, as Jesus himself said. They don't believe that. They believe there's many roads and many ways so long as you're sincere. But yet they belong to the visible church. And Augustine, in his day, actually made a distinction between what is referred to as the visible and the invisible church. The visible church being the external institution observed with the eyes. The neighbors today, when these people drive in, see an expression of the visible church. Yet, within the visible church, not everyone who's going to walk in this building, probably, I would hope they are, are are truly saved, truly believe. And that is to say that the visible church is is certainly not in a state of, of monolithic unity. We'd all agree with that, right? The invisible church is made up of all those who truly do belong to Jesus Christ. They're truly regenerate, numbered amongst God's elect, and that church, as it exists in Christ, Christ is ultimately and truly one worldwide, regardless of denomination, regardless of denominational distinctions. But those distinctions, nevertheless, certainly do adhere to the essentials of true Christianity, essential Christian doctrine. It's the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ. That's his um, glorious work that affects the the mystical union of believers to Christ. Um, uh, He is the operating agent who brings together what is referred to as the invisible church. So we all have brothers and sisters around this world who are truly united to Christ. That's what's referred to as the invisible. Not underground. Invisible is not the underground church but it involves redeemed sinners of like precious faith. Amen? Now, in any congregation that's visible to us, God alone sees those that are truly his who are joined together. Amen? God knows those who are his invisibly that gather together in what is visible. So that's what the terminology is referring to when we say, visible and invisible church. Now, in the New Testament, so that worldwide church, that holy Catholic or or worldwide church, that holy Christian church throughout the nations, gathers in different locations. And they have since the first century. And when we read the epistles, for instance, the apostles address the church at Ephesus, Colossae, Corinth, the church at Rome, and so on. Paul wrote the church of the the Thessalonians. So that church, the one true church, is not only ordained by God, she, the scripture said, is, is the very lamp of God. If you want to turn to the book of Revelation. And at the center of that lampstand is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 1 Beginning in verse 12, this is John's glorious vision. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. So again, as I've said in our book, Study of Revelation, uh, this description is not what Jesus looks like. This is what Jesus is like. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and these seven churches that Jesus addresses um, are a model for churches to this very day. Some are true. And some have many false converts in them as Jesus addresses them. Now, Jesus sees clearly with those eyes like fire, he, he sees right into, as in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, he sees into the lampstand, he knows who's his and he knows who's are not. And notice to the church of Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, Revelation 2.2, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. So he's intimately involved with his people. In verse 8, to Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. Write these words, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, they are a synagogue of Satan. So, first century church was being persecuted not only by uh, pagan Rome, or those pagans throughout the Roman Empire here, um, Asia Minor, but also they were persecuted from Jews. They were getting at both ends, from both ends. And he says, those who claim to be mine, you know what? In their synagogues, it's nothing but a synagogue of Satan. They claim to know me, the one true God, but they are the synagogue of Satan. To the church of Pergamum, verse 13, chapter 2, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, but yet you hold fast to my name. So amongst all these pagan deities... Judaism, he said, I know where you dwell. Revelation 3, to the church of Sardis. Now, notice this now. Okay, here's the visible church. Jesus looks into it. He provides commentary. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. 
strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, notice this now, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. So there, in the midst of the visible church, we have some apparent apostates, those who at one time professed Christ, have obviously either walked away from the faith or they're still involved in pagan ritualistic activity. Whatever, we see here that the seven letters show us how intimately involved and concerned our Lord is with his church. You know, metaphors used with reference to his church are very personal, intimate, and familial. We are the body. We read that in scripture. His church is his body, his bride, the family of God, the household of faith, and the very temple of God. The church is his temple. And this is not a temple made with hands, amen? There's no temple made with hands needed. Christ abolished that. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, as Jesus said it would be, because that temple pointed forward to him, the true temple of God. Destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. And now, we, Christ's people, are referred to as his temple. The temple of the living God. So God's elect, those for whom he shed his blood, are loved by him with an everlasting love. So therefore, he's intimately involved with you, his church, personally, individually, and corporately as a body. So she is a unique gathering of people. Amen? That which occurs today, that's which, which will occur in this next hour, is a unique gathering so often taken for granted. That's why I always remind us, do not take this for granted. This is a special privilege that we have to gather every Lord's Day, especially with the freedom that we still have to be able to do so. And, as Scripture says, that gathering is not to be what? Forsaken. We're not to neglect the gathering together among God's people. This is where we receive God's word. This is where we're built up in the faith. This is where we're reminded of whose we are and who we are. We are in Christ because we are Christ's, purchased by the blood of Christ. We are his bride. So here here at Pacific Hope Church, uh, we are a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing Christian church, often called evangelical, often referred to as evangelicals. Uh, That subject... Um, of a people who are, you know, a subset of, of the Protestant churches, churches or denominations of the uh, last hundred years or so, where that word has become more popular. Many contemporary evangelicals, um, however, don't generally hold a very high view of the local gathered church in our day. Have you experienced this? In talking with people. Instead, many of them have been suspicious of the church um, due to her liberalism. The church has become very liberal over the last number of decades. And liberalism usually starts in the high offices of ivory 
towers. And then that trickles down to seminaries. And then down to the denominational trunk. And its infectious disease eventually shows up in the local church. So evangelicals can be a bit skeptical about the local gathering of the church, or what they might refer to it as organized religion. (laughs) So they're often very suspicious of heavy-handed denominational administrations, having witnessed them over the years in the hands of, of, of liberals. Liberal theology. That this isn't truly the word of God. All the scripture is not inspired. And so on. One of the things about evangelicalism in our day that's unfortunate is that they focus more on personal salvation than they do the corporate body of believers that gather together which is created through personal, individual salvation, amen? For this is the body of Christ. We're individuals, so we're parts. We have hands in here, and arms in here, and eyes in here, and mouths in here, and it makes up the body of the head, who is Jesus our Lord. Now, some people will go so far as to say, and they can, you know, they identify, them, they identify themselves as evangelicals, and they'll say, I love Jesus, I just can't stand his church. I love Jesus, I just can't stand organized religion. Have you ever heard that? Matthew Henry once said this, when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. If you believe that this morning, then you can confess I believe in the Holy Catholic or the Holy Christian Church. You're going to confess it today before you take the Lord's table. Amen? I believe in the Holy Christian Church. Now, Augustine put it more forcefully when he said this, quote, He cannot cannot have God for his father who refuses to have the church for his mother. End quote. So, anytime professing believers are in a corporate gathering, and they are not under sound doctrinal ecclesiastical teaching. When they're not, you know, when they're given to entertainment or whatever nonsense they're given to, they can easily be blown off course and actually begin to mix pagan ideology with their Christianity, forming their own brand of Christianity. Can I get a witness to this, brothers and sisters, here this morning? (laughs) The, 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 The Pew Research Center, they did a Pew poll. and It's from 2009. And they say that there's a growing number of professing Christians who believe in a variety of Eastern and New Age beliefs. For instance... The poll came out saying that 22% of Christians say they believe in reincarnation. 23% of professing Christians believe in astrology. While 15% of professing Christians have consulted a fortune teller or a psychic. There's some ignorant Protestants who believe in the evil eye. 
That is that someone can put a curse on your life. Others claim to have contact with the dead. That poll tells us, beloved, that a high percentage of professing evangelicals who who mix and match Eastern religion into their belief system are undoubtedly creating their own brand of Christianity. It's not biblical. If you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, who's to say what goes within the gathering of God's people? So they personalize their religion as they do their, their iPhone in our day, right? They, they mix what they like. They, they bring in what they prefer. But true Christianity is not a mishmash of ideals that we, we pick and choose to customize our personal Christianity. Amen? How many people do you say, you know, my, my faith... How many people have you heard say, my faith is personal, right? My Christianity is a private matter. No, it is not. I don't read that anywhere in the scripture, that it's personal, that it's private. And this is one of the reasons why so much of the visible church is not part of the true church. Those who are truly regenerate, numbered among God's elect, who truly belong to Christ, can say that I am Christ. I am in Christ. We believe what God has said about himself. right? The true Christian believes what God has said about us. We believe what God has said about salvation. We believe what God has said about hell. We believe what God has said about his church. That is, we believe the Bible. That it's God-breathed. So the church in making confession isn't to borrow from the pagans, amen? We don't borrow from the pagans. We're supposed to lovingly reach out to the pagans. We're going to learn that today. There's a way to evangelize. If, if, if you want to gain access into your, especially your loved ones who are pagan, there's a way to do that. You don't shut them down because they believe in lunacy, Amen? Okay, we're, going to re- we're going to see today that, that Moses' father-in-law, he was a pagan Midian priest. He believed in nonsense. But the way Moses treats him earns for him the opportunity to declare the one true God. Amen? Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, and through all, and in all. How many ways to God, friends? One. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Oh, we had it up there, great. So what kind of people make up the church? It's those who come under the sound of the gospel. We've come under the sound of the gospel. And that is, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Saved from God. What is it to be saved from? When people say, brother, are you saved? Say, saved from what? See if they know the right answer. 
We as Christians are saved by God from God. From what? Aspect of God. His holy wrath. He's a just judge. And in his mercy, he dispensed grace to us, saving us by way of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the punishment of the Father upon himself in our place. Therefore, we are saved by God from God. So all saved people at some point in time are brought to the place of being convicted of their sins. They've sinned against a holy God. They're convicted of their sinfulness. And there's one place to go when that conviction becomes a reality by the power of the Spirit. And it's down on your face before this holy God. Pleading for repentance. They truly repent. That means they have a change of thinking. They were going this way in rebellion against God. They turn around now. And according to his grace, they follow God. Because they can. Before they could not. Now they have the spirit. They've been enabled to do so. Life has been wrought within the people of God. Amen. And then we become publicly identified with our Lord Jesus Christ. When someone repents and believes, the next step is to get baptized. Because in public baptism, you're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what baptism represents. If you're a Christian here and you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. And you say, what about our children? Well, we, and you can read our statement of faith, we don't baptize children. Because the Bible teaches clearly, make disciples, make disciples. You can only make disciple of someone who's converted. So once someone's converted, we make disciples of them, baptizing them, those disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? And we want a child to be old enough to stand on their own and not simply want to please their parents. Amen? That's why we want to wait till they're a little older and they've been challenged by the world and we see that their faith is one professed with their own mouth for the glory of God, not for the benefit of their parents. In Acts 2, what do we read? that great day on Pentecost when Peter preached. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's a great question. I love it when someone comes under the power of the word of God and they go, Now what? I really believe this. Now what? Peter said, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not baptism that saves, amen? Baptism is a sign that one is saved by grace through faith. Now in that day, in the first century, uh, great trouble came upon those who were publicly baptized. That's really where real persecution began. And still, in many parts of the world, Muslims who persecute Christians, they really go after those who've made this public statement of faith in a public baptism. Uh, we, a couple friends of mine uh, and myself, we read this book, uh, Persecutor. It's the story of uh, um, Sergei Kordikov. He was uh, raised up and groomed by the KGB back in the 1950s and 60s. And it was his job to go persecute the church in Russia that was meeting secretly within homes. 
And this Sergei Kortikov used to just beat the daylights out of these professing Christians, and they would hide in the woods where they would go along the riverbed to be baptized. And those who were baptized, they would drown, beat women and men. And there was a little girl, a young, young girl, who, not 20-something, her name was Natasha, Ryan, Natasha. And one of the things that the Lord used with regard to the conversion of Sergei Kortikov was that they used to mockingly beat this young Natasha. They would spank her like a child and she, until she had welts. And he said, the next home we would go to, two, three weeks later, there was Natasha. We do it again. Three, four weeks later, we go to another home. There was Natasha. So Sergei Kortigov goes into the Navy branch as a KGB agent. He's on a ship off the shore of Canada, up here northwest. And the Holy Spirit is working in him, and he jumps ship. And he ends up becoming a Christian, and he used to speak in the, in the 60s publicly about the persecution of the church in Russia. And he was actually found dead with a bullet in his head. Uh, was it Big Bear or somewhere up here in California? And they just figured that the KGB eventually caught up with him. But that testimony of these Christians being publicly baptized, persecution would be inflicted upon those who made a profession of faith publicly. The persecutor, Sergei Kortigov, highly recommend it. It's a great read. Now, there are three institutions that we read about um, in the scriptures. That is, three divine institutions of our Lord. Uh, the first is marriage. Marriage and family. The second is government. And the third is the church. The Lord instituted marriage. Okay? He instituted marriage cons- consisting of a man and a woman. Male and a female. Way back in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2 we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Man, woman, instituted by God. Well, Jesus never said anything about that. Well, yes, he did. When the Pharisees were inquiring about divorce, Jesus said, have you not read? Do you not know, have you not read, that he created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus said there that marriage is not to be toyed with by man, having been instituted by God. Government is also a divine institution of God, set in order, ordained by God, and as such, we as citizens are ordered to pay taxes, which we love to do. That's why so many people are moving to Texas. They don't pay state taxes and get a lot more breaks there. So we're called to pay our taxes. We're we're, we're called to pray for our leaders, regardless of who they are. And we, understanding the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, we know that there's no one in office who God himself has not placed there for whatever reason he has placed them there. Amen? Therefore, we show respect. Regardless of your 
political allegiance, we are to show respect for those who are in office. We're called to pray for them. We're called to obey law. You remember when Paul, and we find that in 1 Peter, we find that in Romans 13. And think about this. Paul wrote Romans 13 when wicked Nero, Nero, was emperor of the Roman Empire. He said, submit yourself to governing authorities. And there's a limit until we're ordered to do that which is contrary to the word of God. We submit. When we're ordered to do that which is contrary to the word of God and the will of God, we don't bow down before Caesar. Amen? And then the church. This is the third divine institution ordained by God. Christ alone builds his church. Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. For she was purchased with his blood. Acts 20, 28. Paul said, pay careful attention to those elders. He said this in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, it's his, with his own blood. It's his bride. We're stewards. We're stewards of this. He is the head of the church, Ephesians 1.22. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, as regards his church, he sets the rules for his church. Amen? Where do we find that instruction? In the Bible. Thank you very much. Amen. Someone actually said Bible back there. So He sets the rules. How, are we, how we are to work. How we are to worship. How we are to function. How we are to serve. Will we do that perfectly, beloved? No, because we're still sinners. Sinner saved by grace, amen? By grace. So the church is not, a, is not an extension uh, or, or natural continuation of the natural family. So to teach, as some denominations do, that your children are all automatically in because they're your children. You're a believer and they're your children, they're automatically in. Not true. Jesus said clearly, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He cannot perceive it, he cannot understand it in any way, nor will he ever obtain it, lest he be born again, supernaturally from above. It's the work of the Spirit of God. The state is not the church. Amen? The, church doesn't, the state doesn't regulate the teachings and practices of the church. That's why in some nations they have to meet in little homes like Natasha did in Russia. Jesus said, I will build my church. Ecclesia means called out or called together. And he himself calls his own to himself. They hear his word, they, they receive his word, and they're added to the church. He builds it. In Acts 2.41, we read, those who received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pentecost. Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day. Now, where do sinners ordinarily hear the gospel proclaimed? Not exclusively, but ordinarily. 
seated among the saints, seated amongst saved sinners that we hopefully will invite to hear the gospel proclaimed. Or you proclaim it yourself on your street or in your homes or whatnot, but ordinarily they'll, they'll hear it among the gathered people of God. That's why we encourage you to invite people to church anytime you want. It's here, like today when we gather. Some may come under great conviction of the word, amen? Look, I I tell the guys on Thursdays all the time, I love conviction. I love being convicted by the Holy Spirit when I sin or when I'm thinking wrongly. I love being convicted because conviction from God is a sign that you're alive and in Christ, right? Conviction is a good thing. Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens, just like a father who loves his children or a mother who loves her children. If you don't chasten or discipline your children, that means you don't love them according to the Bible. And the Lord loves his children. So when we sit under the word, there's times that we come under great conviction. There's other times that we're greatly edified, amen? We're built up in the faith. Reminded of who we are and whose we are. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this one true church is a universal church, the holy Catholic church, the holy Christian church, and it's made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That was the promise to Abraham. Through you will be blessed many, you know, many nations. Through the loins, the promise given to Abraham. We are the children of Abraham, amen? Indeed we are. And we saw this at the outset in the book of Acts. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian? This Ethiopian's coming in to town, and he runs along this, this carriage, this Ethiopian eunuch. Philip runs alongside. And this Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53, which is the, the, the picture of Christ to come. And he came, he says, of who, to whom does the prophet speak? So he hops up in the carriage and he points him to Christ and the guy's converted and he said, hey, there's water right there. Is there anything, from keep me from, anything keeping me from being baptized? And there he was baptized. They went down into the water and he was baptized. There's Peter and Cornelius the centurion. Centurion, a, a leader of 100 men in the, in the Roman army. We see him come to faith. And then to close, and a lot more I want to say, but we're out of time. God's intent has always been to create a people of faith from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just the Jews. That's why we read Ephesians 2. The two men have become what? One in Christ. One. That middle wall of separation has been broken down in Christ. So the church is made up of all kinds of sinners from all kinds of places. Amen? And I close with this, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's addressing the church of Corinth. They're pretty messed up church. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice what he goes on to say. And such were some of you. 
Christ in his grace called you out from these places, from these things. And you were what? You were washed and you were sanctified. You were set apart in his grace. You were justified, meaning you were declared free of all blame in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Wretched sinners, amen, that we are saved by grace. That's the church. We're no better than anybody else. (laughs) No better. We're saved by grace, which means unmerited favor. I believe in the holy Christian church. Sinners saved by grace.